0: Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. I want to talk to you before we get to our guest today about polls. I have many readers and listeners who want to know should we be worried? Biden is, seems to be close to, or tied to, or slightly behind Donald Trump. What's going on? Should we worry? And I think the easiest thing to do for about the next year is to totally ignore polls. I don't mean this purely as a means of mental self-preservation, although it does perform that service. It's simply that it has zero meaning. And it's not that it has some meaning, it has no meaning. And the reason is really four or five fold. First, have we not learned that these polls are hugely inaccurate? They didn't call the two thousand. 16, race correctly. They didn't call 2020 correctly. They predicted the red wave in 2022, which never materialized. So why we should keep investing our faith and making decisions and reporting the news based upon this admittedly inaccurate, ridiculous method of uh, tracking Americans' thinking Is really beyond me. I I think it's a waste of time. And worse, it makes people crazy. Second, it's way too early. If you go back to a year and a half before the 2016 election or a year and a half before the 2020 election, would you have any meaningful information that Hillary Clinton was going to narrowly lose or Biden was going to narrowly win? You wouldn't. Right now, it's a waste of time because we don't really know what the state of play is. Is Donald Trump already going to be convicted? Is he going to be under trial? Is he going to be exonerated? How is Biden doing? Does he appear vigorous? Does he not appear vigorous? So nothing that we know now really is going to affect what we think 18 months from now. And for that reason alone, we should discount this. Lastly, voters tell us conflicting things. They are of mixed mind on many topics. On one hand, you say, well, the polls show that it, the race is evenly divided between Biden and Trump. On the other hand, you get 65% or so of voters who say these charges are very serious. We shouldn't elect a felon. So which is it? We're not going to elect a felon or we're going to elect Donald Trump, who may be a felon. And this sort of contradictory information permeates um, what we get back in Poland. Because number one, people don't know what they want. Secondly, they don't know what the pollster wants. And third of all, we have a lot of voters, most voters, who simply respond based upon their tribal identity. That is why so many people, are convinced we're in a recession. When we are not in a recession, we've gained millions of jobs. The growth rate is up. The job creation rate is up. Black unemployment employment is up. And conversely, inflation is down. So why are people convinced that we're in a depression? Because people who don't like Biden, Republicans primarily, are not going to give him credit for anything. So even if we had 10% growth or we had 0% inflation, he would not be given credit for it. So why do we take the responses uh, from these polls seriously? It seems absurd. Part of the reason is that it's there. It's easy, lazy reporting by the mainstream media. They don't have to do any investigative work. They don't have to spend millions of dollars. They hire a pollster. They get a few hundred people who they frankly can't get unless they make thousands upon thousands of calls because the response rate is so low now on polls. And so they can throw this up and then they can endlessly munch on it and chew it over and spit it out and pontificate. And this feeds the insiderism that we are plagued with in so much of our political reporting. So many reporters, rather than report what is actually going on in the economy, are we in a recession or are we having a really remarkable recovery, that famed soft landing? Rather than report that, they would rather report what people think about the economy and this enables them to maintain this journalistic neutrality, this insider information. You can only figure out what's really going on if you listen to us or watch us. And this is very defeating, um, I think, for viewers, for readers who want to actually be informed one of my prior guests, um, the great Jay Rosen, reminded us on an earlier program that we should get over the assumption that the media is out to make informed citizens. They're not. They're there to cut and dice and splice the, whatever inputs they get in order to attract eyeballs and ears and um, make money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a completely uh, acceptable journalistic uh, endeavor of making money, and that's what capitalism says that we're all supposed to do or all allowed to do, but it doesn't serve our democracy well. And that's what I come back to and the real concern I have about these polls. They take the place of serious discussion about the state of our democracy, which is extremely fragile, which is extremely tenuous at this point. And rather than really delve into how Trump, for example, resembles strongmen in the mode of Mussolini or Franco or Pinochet, rather than inquire, how is it that millions of Republicans are so blinded by faith that they would take what Donald Trump says as truth more readily than they would their own family members and friends? Why don't we get a discussion of that? And the answer I come back to again and again is that the press does not want to seem like they are taking sides. And the side of truth, therefore, gets slighted. The side of truth tells us we are going through an unprecedented period of time in American history that can only be analogized to other countries expressing and experiencing a threat of fascist takeover. And the habits, the mindset, the really deafness to fact and reality that we're seeing among millions upon millions of Republicans, that's a problem. And the press refusing to take that seriously and kind of confront, frankly, voters with their own insanity is itself a threat to our democracy. So if you liked this little intro, as depressing as it may be, and you like our programs, please follow the program wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends, and remind them that we have spectacular guests. This week, we're going to have Jamie Raskett, who is the wonderful congressman and manager of the impeachment process, and also a constitutional guru. Welcome to the show, Congressman Raskin.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Jennifer Rubin.
0: It is a pleasure to sit down and chat with my favorite congressional guru, uh, someone who has served his country not only in the House, but specifically as the one of the managers on the impeachment and uh, on the January 6th committee, of course. So let me start with sort of the issue du jour that has been going around, and that is section three of the 14th amendment, which says that a official is disqualified, cannot run for office, cannot be elected for federal office if he's participated or given aid in a insurrection. There's been a group of well-regarded legal scholars who say that applies to Trump and he simply can't run. It would be like if he were 30 years old rather than 35 years old, or if he wasn't born in the United States. What is your view of that? And how should this work out? How should this play out in keeping with our devotion to the Constitution?
1: Well, of course, it does apply to Trump. It applies to all of us. Uh, Anybody who would um, swear an oath to uphold the Constitution and then betray the oath by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, of course, was added to the Constitution after the Civil War to build that um, anti betrayal principle into the Constitution. You don't get a second shot once you've proven that you're a danger to the continuation of the Republic. Um, so, um, you know, we invoked it uh, numerous times at the January 6th hearings. Um, and um, it's something that Democrats have been talking about really since um, since the insurrection took place on January 6th. But it's been given um, uh, a robust new lease on life by these two Federalist Society scholars who spent a year researching every aspect of it and came back with the same conclusion that it would indeed apply uh, to Trump and Significantly, they took the position that it is a self-executing provision in the Constitution, meaning that we don't need to set up a whole separate judicial process to make it real. It doesn't say that uh, anyone convicted of insurrection or rebellion shall um, not be allowed to serve. Again, it says anyone who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion, um, which means that uh, secretaries of state, boards of elections, administrative officers, as well as courts um, have a constitutional duty to enforce the provision.
0: And that would look like what? Um, a secretary of state says, this guy is not qualified to run for president in the constitution. We can keep him off the ballot. And then what? What happens then?
1: Yeah, it would be like if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or my law school classmate Jennifer Granholm showed up and tried to run for president, and then someone objects saying they're not a born U.S. citizen, they're a naturalized U.S. citizen. And at that point, the Secretary of State or the Board of Elections would have to engage in whatever administrative fact-finding process they use in order to um, settle controversies about somebody's qualification to run. Just like if, you know, a 14-year-old showed up and tried to run for president and somebody objected, you know, that's just a a matter of positive fact. Do they meet the 35-year-old threshold or not?
0: Eventually, this will wind up in a court because a secretary of state or election board member will say, no, you can't get on the ballot and Trump will sue or someone uh, from the Republican Party will sue and will wind up in court. Is this something that eventually reaches the Supreme Court, which has not exactly shown its political independence or its partisan uh, neutrality um, in recent years? Is that what we're headed for? A Justice Thomas written opinion that says, oh, no, he could run, he can hold office.
1: Well, almost certainly it will go to the Supreme Court. And um, there are so many ways it could reach the Supreme Court. It could be through the state courts, it could be through Federal courts. Um, it you know it could start with a lower court ruling. It could start with an administrative determination that someone challenges and then goes to court. So there are different ways it can make its way up. But um, I think all roads do lead the Supreme Court here, um, and you know, you're right, we obviously have a a gerrymandered Supreme Court, Uh, my constituent, and now the Attorney General Merrick Garland, never even got a hearing when he was nominated 11 months uh, before the end of Obama's um, second term. Uh, And yet then they railroaded through the nomination of Amy Cumber. Barrett. But um, in any event, um, you know, this is a court that Um, has been quite ideologically rigid and fixed. On on the other hand, the closer you get to Donald Trump himself, the more skittish they seem to be about acting like lockstep robots within the cult of Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, the, the big legal question here is, what does it mean to have engaged in insurrection? Um, within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, you know, I would think it must mean at least at a minimum that if you were impeached by the House of Representatives and found by a majority of the Senate to have in, incited an insurrection against the union, you would qualify. Um, but, you know, one can imagine arguments to it. And so I do think it's anybody's guess where it would go. But... Um, you know, we have a very powerful anti-insurrection constitution, Jen. Um, you know, Article 1, uh, sec- Section 8, uh, Clause uh, 14 says that Congress has the power to call forth the um, militias uh, of the states in order to put down, in order to suppress insurrections, Right. Um, The Treason Clause defines treason as levying arms against the union. The Republican Guarantee Clause says that Congress must guarantee to the people of the states a Republican form of government and assist them in putting down domestic violence. Um, And, uh, you know, there's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment itself, which says if you've sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, but you engage in insurrection or rebellion, you shall never be allowed to both federal or state office, again. um, So there are multiple features of the Constitution that mobilize against um, insurrectionary politics. That's not protected by the First Amendment. It's not protected by the Second Amendment in any way. We do not have the only Constitution on Earth that somehow encloses the instructions to overthrow The Constitution and the government.
0: Great point, and fascinating citation to those other provisions in the Constitution. And there was a reason for that, of course, which is that the Articles of Confederacy were incapable of dealing with those sorts of rebellions. And then the Civil War came along, and there was further need um, to empower the federal government.
1: Well, and there was a very specific event, Shays Rebellion, which. the the framers of the Constitution um, participated in mobilizing against. And um, they felt very strongly something that Abraham Lincoln later restated, which is that um, if you object to what the government is doing, you can use the peaceful mechanisms to change the government through elections. You can amend the Constitution through the provisions of Article 5. Or you can exercise your natural rights to overthrow the government, the rights that Jefferson talked about in the Declaration of Independence. But at that point, you set yourself at war against the constitutional order. So you better be sure you're right and you better be sure you're gonna win. Because if you think that um, the 2020 presidential election, which the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump determined was the most secure presidential election in our history, is actually an exercise of tyranny. If you think it's an exercise of corruption and you've taken it to court and it's been rejected by 60 federal and state courts, but you still insist that it is an episode of tyranny like King George's um, abuses and usurpations cited by Jefferson. Okay, then have at it. You can attack our police officers. You can beat people up with Confederate battle flags and Trump flags, you can storm the House and the Senate, you can make war against the constitutional order. But if we stop you and we arrest you and we prevent it from happening, then we are going to prosecute you within the due process of law and the presumption of innocence. But if you're found guilty by a jury of your peers, then uh, like Stuart Rhodes, the Yale Law School graduate who's head of the Oath Keepers, you're going to prison for 18 or 19 years. Um, And that's true of the hundreds of other people who've been convicted. Nobody has had an indictment quashed. Nobody has had a conviction thrown out on the grounds that there is a right to overthrow the government or engage in insurrection. And I press that point, Jen, only because I debate this on an almost daily basis with some of my colleagues who insist that the meaning of the Second Amendment is that the people have the right to overthrow the government which is why they say we must have assault weapons and AR-15s in the hands of madmen, why there can be no red flag laws, why we cannot ban assault weapons, why we cannot have a universal violent criminal background check. They say that all violates the Second Amendment because it gives the people the right to overthrow the government. It does not. The Supreme Court has never found that. Um, And it's not written in invisible ink that the people can have an insurrection. And we have all these other counter indications in the constitution itself that the government can put down insurrections. And, um, you know, a subsidiary point to this is the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Ku Klux Klan are not a militia. A militia is not whoever declares themselves to be a militia. The militia is organized by the state governments and appointed, the officers are appointed by the state governments, and then the Congress has the power to arm them and to discipline them and to impose impose rules on them. So that's why the Second Amendment talks about um, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Sometimes my Colleagues will get up and say, Raskin wants to repeal the Second Amendment. I say, I don't want you to repeal the Second Amendment. I want you to read the Second Amendment. Right. That's all I'm asking.
0: And that is a perfect segue, speaking of the Constitution and one's obligations, to the January 6th committee and the subsequent indictments. I am struck by how carefully, both in Georgia and in the federal indictment, that the prosecutors essentially told the same story in their so-called speaking indictment that the January 6th committee told us that there was a organized conspiracy, that Trump tried to cook up phony electors. When that didn't work, he tried pressuring the vice president. When that didn't work, he set the mob up to the hill. I'm curious what you think of the indictments, whether they included things that either we didn't know or we're Uh, didn't realize that were related to this, Um, and if there's things that they left out that you think the January 6th committee established that you're surprised were not included in these indictments?
1: Well, let's see. Um, You know, it's kind of like each of the indictments... Uh, is picturing a different part of the elephant, right? Right,
0: right. The top half is the federal one, and the bottom of the elephant, if you will, if you're going to go vertically, is yeah. what happened out in the States, etc. That,
1: that's right. Um, and there were many different phases to the lawlessness. I mean, I have felt for a long time that Donald Trump is a one-man crime wave in the way that the great mob bosses are. They just wake up and they begin violating the laws. Um They come to personify and embody injustice and lawlessness. Um, So, um, you know, the the federal indictment, it seems to me, um, captures
0: um, in
1: a macro sense the, the efforts to overthrow the election in the final stages to get Mike Pence to set aside Uh, the rule of law and the Constitution to step outside of his constitutional role and just declare Trump the victor or to um, illegitimately kick the election into uh, a so-called contingent election in the House of Representatives, Um, there was a very clear plan to thwart um, and interfere with the federal proceeding that is the joint session of Congress, Um, again, in the most comprehensive sense, it was an effort to cheat the people out of an election and to violate everybody's voting rights. I mean, we have people sitting in jail today, Jen, uh, in different parts of the country for trying to alter one vote in an election. Donald Trump tried to steal the entire election. He tried to nullify everybody's votes and to substitute his will. And so I think that that Jack Smith's... um, D.C. case captures what was going on there, Um, what we get um, in such a fine-grained and dazzling way in the uh, Georgia prosecution is the reconstruction of what was taking place in a particular state in terms of trying to get particular elected officials to abandon their oath of office, to get particular election officials to lie about what had happened and what they had done in order to concoct a new story, um, the manufacture of the counterfeit electors, and so on. So that is a very fine-grained, micro-detailed rendering of what was taking place um, at the state level. And, you know, of course, the government uh, documents case it seems to be just open and shut in terms of Donald Trump deliberately stealing these documents, perfectly aware he had no right to them. Then when he was told to return them, returning only a, a fraction of them, but then taking extra pains to conceal the other ones, to move them around and hide them. Um, and so um, that's a completely separate offense, of course, and then, uh, you know, you really had business as usual during the Trump administration with uh, the payoffs to, um, you you know, the the porn stars who, um, you know, wanted hush money um, for their willingness, you know, not to describe what had taken place between them and Donald Trump. So, I mean, I think all of them, add up to at least a pretty good snapshot of business as usual within the Trump White House.
0: I thought it was intellectually um, very clever, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, that Jack Smith used the Ku Klux Klan statute against Trump because that statute was designed, as you say, to prosecute people criminally who are out to deprive people of the right to have their vote cast or their vote counted. And there is some delicious irony here in that being used against Donald Trump. Um, did you consider at all that statute as you were kind of looking for possible hooks or did this one, it took me a little bit by surprise, was this um, a, a novel innovation that uh, Jack Smith came up with?
1: Well, um, I mean, when you think about it, it's perfectly fitting to its original purposes. Um, You know, the Ku Klux Klan was involved um, at the end of the Reconstruction period in exactly what um, the mob, in the sense both of Trump's inner conspirators and then the mob he whipped up outside were involved in. Um, That is trying to thwart actual democracy and the expression of popular will. I mean, through uh, an institution, the Electoral College, which of course itself embodies certain anti-democratic features um, as well as some popular features, but the, that's, that was the business of the Ku Klux Klan. It was to make sure that there would be uh, white rule, in some cases majority white rule, in some cases minority white rule, wherever white rule could be challenged by uh, coalitions of African-Americans and um, pro-union whites um, in southern states. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a mere happenstance that the Confederate battle flag was brandished inside um, the Capitol or that there were, um, you know, so many expressions of pro-Confederate, pro-secessionist politics taking place outside. I mean, all of it is about trying to elevate a particular vision of, uh, right-wing white supremacy over democratic po- politics. And, you know, you, to this day, so many of my colleagues on across the aisle will, will say we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Now, of course, a republic is just a representative democracy. It, we're a republic because the room won't hold 300 million people, but we elect people to represent us. And yet they seem to mean by that particular locution that um, it, the the majority was never intended to be enfranchised and empowered. And they believe that there are all of these anti-democratic filters, some of which have been overthrown, some not, which um, work together to enshrine white rule. Um, and, um, you know, that might be the deep tectonics of the struggle that we're in today.
0: I think you cannot ignore race. You cannot ignore the fact that Donald Trump specifically chose, um, for example, the Detroit vote, the Atlanta vote, heavily African American places in his effort to disenfranchise people. Um, I think, um, basically we come back to this notion that they're in the minority. They no longer can, um, command the support and through the democratic process. And so the next, best thing for them is to fracture the electorate and have only their people vote on the notion that only certain people are real Americans. It was also interesting to me how Jack Smith dealt with the violence on January six. He did not make incitement to violence um, one of the charges, um, but he does say that Trump took advantage of them of the violence. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts were. That struck me as not so much a factual distinction, but a legal strategic decision so that he would not get himself involved in First Amendment arguments, even though I think he could have prevailed on them um, regarding his speech on the ellipse that day, um, that he didn't want to kind of go down that road of um, kind of fighting out on First Amendment grounds. And so he says right up front in the indictment that everyone has, he had the right to say whatever he wanted. He just didn't have the right to try to overthrow the election. I'm curious what you thought of um, how he dealt with that First Amendment issue and the issue of violence.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, Even in the impeachment trial, we encountered repeated First Amendment arguments that we were somehow violating Donald Trump's free speech rights, which was utterly outlandish there, of course, because we weren't talking about putting somebody in jail or prosecuting them. Uh, We were talking about whether or not you're fit to be president of the United States, when you have incited a violent insurrection against the union. Um, I think the, the founders would turn over in their grades to think that somehow the Senate could not exercise their jurisdiction over a president who incites violent insurrection because it would violate the president's First Amendment rights. That's cuckoo, but even there, that was the major claim that was being advanced at various points, and I remember, uh, Alan Dershowitz, my former criminal law professor, denounced me for, um, you know, trampling Donald Trump's First Amendment rights, which strikes me as utterly ridiculous. So in addition to it being a category error, because you're talking about the standards of high crime and misdemeanor, misdemeanor and the standard of presidential conduct, not whether or not someone's going to jail, but leaving that aside even if we were talking about a criminal prosecution. And this is why I think you're right that Jack Smith could have gone there, but decided for prudential and tactical reasons not to go there. But the fact is that under the Brandenburg decision, incitement to imminent lawless action that's likely to produce imminent lawless action is not protected by the First Amendment. That's what's cut out. And that is definitely a small terrain. The Constitution protects a lot in terms of free speech, but what it doesn't protect is precisely what Donald Trump did, which was to engage in deliberate incitement of a mob to engage in imminent lawless action in a way that's likely to produce it. And how do we know that it's likely to produce it? It did produce it. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's exactly what happened there. So I think he could have gone to that very underutilized um, and little-known statute which talks about aiding and abetting and um, giving aid and comfort to insurrectionists. And, of course, he's given aid and comfort after the fact, too, including on that day when he continued to egg them on during the day. Remember when he tweeted against Pence that he didn't have the courage that needed to be done? But then he directly gave aid and comfort to the insurrectionists Um, calling them great patriots and telling them never to forget this day and lauding them, praising them for what they had done. And he's continued to do that all along um, to this day when now he is saying he's going to offer mass pardons to lots of the people who were involved um, in the violence. So having said all of that, I think Jack Smith made um, a totally defensible strategic and tactical decision, which was not to go there, not to give them the opening that they love to play the free speech victim. These are the same people banning books and um, driving uh, professors out of their jobs and doing whatever they can to censor free speech. But in any event, not giving them the opportunity to um, to strike the pose of free speech victims, but say, we're going to just focus exclusively on conduct that was um, designed to overthrow the election. Now, of course, you know most crimes uh, target conduct that itself is braided with speech. I mean, you think about insider trading. It's hard to contemplate insider trading without there being speech, or um, an antitrust conspiracy to fix prices. Very tough to know how that conduct is not accomplished without expression. And communication. I mean, even, um, you know, most rapes are not just the violent coercion, but also the threats that go along with them and the telling the person what to do. I mean, you it's hard to rob a bank without using verbal speech or written speech, right? So um, they will come back and they will start whining, as I think you've suggested, Jen, about this being an attack uh, on free speech, but no more so than any other criminal prosecution in the country.
0: One thing that we certainly learned um, because of January 6th and the work of the committee is how extensive these networks of violent um, right-wing militia groups and the rest are. And many people have pointed to the number of people who were either current or former members of the military, current or former members of um, the police. I'm wondering whether you think we are doing enough um, to make sure that people who hold those views that are contrary to democracy are not in the military or law enforcement and how we do walk that line because we do in that case don't want to say, well, simply because you're a supporter of Donald Trump, you can't be a policeman or simply because you like Donald Trump, you don't want to be in the military. Talk a little bit about that problem and how we navigate around free speech when it comes to the military and law enforcement.
1: Well, the real problem is um, that a number of the extremist groups have undertaken premeditated deliberate campaigns to get people to go and interview for those uh, jobs and positions to suppress their membership and their involvement and their association with the different extremist groups and to get in and then to use their positions in order to advance um, the anti-constitutional, uh, anti-democratic, extremist programs and agendas. So it, it's not that there are some people who happen to find themselves with these views in those positions. There is a deliberate effort to populate the military and police departments with extremists, and um, you know the the extremist groups that are doing that understand. Their history, because that's the moment when fascism um, really begins to uh, reach a tipping point in a society when um, they've been able to infiltrate and penetrate and dominate different law enforcement institutions and different military institutions. So, um, you know, I. I uh, I have no doubt that there are people who have voted for Biden in the military, the people who voted for Trump in the military and so on. The vast majority of them are people who understand how the Constitution works and understand that they've sworn an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, not a particular political party or a particular candidate or person. Um, the problem is that we have serious organizing to take, uh, to take over various institutions, and that's what we need to be focused
0: on. It is, uh, I think, reassuring, at least it was to me, that at the upper echelons of the military, the overwhelming sentiment um, was to defend democracy was pro-democracy that our military is in fact um, supposed to and largely has been inculcated as defenders of democracy not of a single individual but of democracy itself and so I think in general we can praise the military for how they have behaved at the same time being Quite concerned, as you say, about efforts to infiltrate and what those people will do once they're in positions that have weapons and are in a position to uh, harm others
1: I think I think that's right that the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, were um, emphatic, certainly towards the end, about defending the Constitution and not slavishly following whatever Donald Trump wanted and what he wanted people. To do, I think that there was a real moment of reckoning on June first, when um, Attorney General William Barr worked with Trump to organize that paramilitary police riot against Black Lives Matter in um, in Lafayette Square, um, and they drawn together different parts of government, police, and security services to do it. And I think that that was a major wake-up call for people um, within the defense establishment who saw where Donald Trump was going. Incidentally, um, Black Lives Matter called for a protest the next day, June second at the Capitol. And that was when we saw hundreds of National Guardsmen and women lined up with bayonets um, on the stairs of the Capitol. And I think a lot of members of Congress simply assumed we would see the same thing on January 6th, which was a moment of much greater danger, of course, than Black Lives Matter uh, coming to have a nonviolent protest at the Capitol. Um, And yet we didn't get that precisely because uh, Donald Trump, um, as president and the commander in chief of uh, the armed forces and the militias when called into actual action, uh, didn't do anything to engage them. Um, And it wasn't until the very end that they came in um, and helped us to save the day.
0: The investigators at the state and federal level uh, have certainly pierced the inner circle of Donald Trump. The group they've not really been able to pierce is your colleagues. Um, And the January 6th committee and presumably the prosecutors have sort of been stymied in their efforts to figure out exactly how much influence, how much of a role that members of Congress, who are also sworn to uphold the Constitution, played in January 6th, either in the pre-planning or in the efforts to enlist phony electors. Do you think we will get to the bottom of that? And I wonder how you personally feel going to work every day with some of those people who remain in Congress, who clearly, at the very least, were cheering this on. At the least, were cheering this on.
1: Well, it's an open and important
0: question you raise.
1: Um, A number of our colleagues in the House openly defied subpoenas that the January 6th committee issued them to come and testify about what they did know and what they didn't know. So because they violated the subpoenas rendered by um, the Congress, um, which others have been sanctioned for and may indeed go to jail for, um, we don't know a lot about what precisely they did. I mean, we get it in um, partial glimpses uh, revealed by other people's testimony and by other documentary evidence that comes in. And uh, of course, the the constitutional ambiguity that they're preying on is that they are guaranteed uh, under the speech and debate clause that they won't be um, held to account outside of Congress um, for legislative actions that they take within Congress. But um, Look, obviously, if somebody uh, is a member of Congress and they rob a bank, um, if they, you know, knock over a liquor store, they're not covered by the speech and debate clause, even if it takes place in Washington D.C. So the the tricky part here is how do you disentangle those things which they clearly are empowered to do, like they wanted to raise objections, um, however specious. Against the acceptance of electoral college votes from um, Arizona and Georgia and um, Pennsylvania and so on, um, okay, they've got a right to do that. How do you dis? How do you disentangle that right from um, participating in um, a campaign uh, to overturn the election? result by getting Pence to step outside of his constitutional role or giving aid and comfort to violent insurrectionists. Um, you know, we don't know whether any of those things happen, but we need to have some way of finding out. And, um, you know, just because you're a member of Congress doesn't mean that you're um, entitled to engage in other criminal actions, including criminal actions that people who are not in Congress are being charged for today.
0: Well, it will be interesting to see if any of the co-defendants in Georgia decide to cut deals and what information they might be able to convey, not only about Donald Trump, but about members of Congress. Taking a step back um, as we reach the end of our time, I'm wondering what your biggest concern about the 2024 election is. The last Congress did pass. Amendments to the Electoral Count Act, um, important, um, sort of safeguard, um, if you will, for making sure the electors are properly selected and, um, open and clarifying that, of course, the vice president can't simply throw out, um, the electors of the other guys, um, that voted for the other guys. Um, and we have seen prosecution and attorneys be held accountable for their conduct, which is somewhat of a deterrent. But what Kind of keeps you up at night. What are you most concerned about going forward?
1: Well, as we were discussing before, Jen, um, the assault on the 2020 presidential election was multi-pronged. Um, you know, Donald Trump, um, in his inimitable way, zeroed in on every nook and cranny in the antique Electoral College institution um, in order to perpetrate his scheme. Um, You know, there was an effort to get to the the state legislators to nullify the popular vote on a very flimsy basis and simply substitute in Trump um, electors. There was the effort to get state election officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia just to nullify unilaterally electoral college votes or just find uh, popular votes for Trump to reverse the result. Um, You know, all the way down to um, egg on the mob to, you know, to break into the Capitol and to delay the proceedings while putting pressure on Pence to um, abdicate his his legitimate constitutional responsibilities and just to declare Trump unilaterally the victor. So there were lots of things. And so I think that in the same way in 2024, we got to be afraid of lots of other things, too. It's not going to be a target on the vice president. Um, Kamala Harris would not cheat in an election like that, I think, regardless of who um, the victor is. She would never do that. So that's not what we're going to find. But there are lots of efforts to stop college students from voting. There's lots of efforts to shut down precinct polling places, hundreds and hundreds of polling places across the country. There are efforts to set up administrative tribunals over the actual state boards of elections. Um, these would be political functionaries loyal to presumably a GOP governor or state legislature. So. You, you have to go state by state to look and see what the dangers are. And we know the major states that will be targeted, but we have to assume it could happen anywhere. So, you know, vigilance is going to be, um, you know, the price of a fair election here. People have got to be on their guard um, and have got to be vigilant about what's taking place because uh, we'd like to think this struggle is over, but Uh, we might just be in the middle of it right now. And, you know, the political scientists tell us that the surest sign of a successful coup is a recently failed coup where the coup plotters can diagnose the weaknesses in the current regime, figure out what mistakes they made before, and then how to exploit the weaknesses in the existing structure the next time around. So, um, unfortunately, we're still there. There are still people propounding the big lie from 2020. And that feels to me like a dress rehearsal for what's what's to come in 2024.
0: Well, I think we can take some comfort. I certainly tell my readers this, that we have done what a lot of people doubted we could do, which is investigate a former president, conduct an exhaustive investigation at two levels of government, bring charges, bring a... Uh, grand jury of his peers in, by the way, prosecutors don't indict people, grand juries indict people, that's ordinary Americans, and that these people are going to be held to account in the rule of law. I don't want to get too kind of misty-eyed about this, but this is the rule of law, isn't it? This is how it's supposed to work.
1: Well, it is, um, but I I will say that it's not just the rule of law that Um, has worked or whose muscles are coming back into action, it's democracy itself. And here, um, I I do want to say a word um, of praise for you, Jennifer Rubin, because I know you've traveled quite a political and intellectual journey as a journalist, um, but you're someone who's been unafraid to um, embrace the truth and to... Um, you know, continue thinking about things critically um, and not to get locked into um, you know, a partisan position of any kind at all. And I admire that and I respect that. And I think that uh, that too is a victory for civil society when we have um, people who are willing to speak the truth and to stand as constitutional patriots for the overall democratic system, and not just for a particular political faction. Well,
0: that's very kind of you to say, but I think we can all agree that your entire career, your background in constitutional law, constitutional law instruction, has prepared you perhaps better than any other individual for this moment. And um, your service to the country and your ability to articulate, sometimes what seems like esoteric constitutional principles in ways that people understand and have meaning to them is a great, great benefit to our democracy. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, It's delightful to see that you're returning to full health. You never uh, lacked for vigor, even when you were undergoing treatment. And uh, we'll look forward to having you on the show again in the future.
1: I appreciate that very much, Jen. All best to you and to your listeners.
0: And that was Jamie Raskin. What a treasure he is. What a public servant in all the best senses of the word that is. I remain convinced that if not for the January 6th hearing, we would not have gotten the federal indictment. The Justice Department was proceeding at a granular pace from what they called the bottom up. In other words, going through the people who were at the Capitol then the people who, the militia leaders who led them, on some theory that that's how they were going to get Donald Trump. You'll notice that in the indictments that we now have of Donald Trump, there is no connection that was ever established as a matter of law that you could get a prosecution tying Trump to the militia. In other words, that theory that the Justice Department had been operating under that they were going to get Trump by going up the chain of command was never going to work. And it never has. We've never been able to show that. And instead, what they had to do was exactly what the committee did and what Jack Smith did, which was take a step back and look at the entire coup, which was what was going on, and see the ways in which the events of January 6th were preceded by the phony elector scheme, the efforts to pressure people like Brad Ratzenberger, the effort to pressure the vice president, and that that was the coup that Donald Trump was most intimately involved in. And that was the kind of behavior that he is going to be held accountable in at least two trials, one in state court and one in federal court. And we should keep our eye on Arizona because that is another state in which there's ample evidence. Just as Fonnie Willis did a deep dive into the evidence in Georgia, I think Arizona will bear fruit as well. So we're perhaps not quite done with the indictments yet. And the rule of law, slowly, slowly, slowly is working its way. And for that, we should be both proud and appreciative, but also alarmed at the degree to which Trump and his supporters continue to denigrate and try to discredit the state and federal courts, a great danger to our democracy as well. If you like this show... Please tell your friends, ask them to follow Jen Rubin's Green Room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get the podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.